Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. My name is Tim Grady, and I'm here with Lou Weiss, who's both the founder of Manufacturing Talk Radio and also the president of All Metals and Forge Group, which is the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. So if you're looking for open die forgings and seamless rolled rings, check them out at steelforge.com. Joining us today is Dr. Chris Keel. We want to talk about the flagship report that his company, Armada Corporate Intelligence, produces, along with his ACES report, which has some very interesting indicators. Chris, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. So give us some good encouraging news because everybody still wants to talk about the R word, recession. Oh, I know. I know. I know. I'm still talking people off a ledge. And before I get into the delights of the flagship and ACES, just a word on recession and the media. Part of the problem is that the media wants to talk about economics in sound bites, and it can't because it just doesn't lend itself to that kind of snappy repartee. And so a couple of months ago, we were informed we, the public, that we'd had two straight quarters of negative GDP. And the media said, aha, that is the definition of a recession. Well, it isn't. Um, the only reason that we look at GDP numbers is that the National Bureau of Economic Research is the arbiter of all things official recession. They are the ones that will declare that you have been in a recession. They don't predict one. They don't even tell you that you're in one. They will look backwards and say you were in one. And one of the things that they look at is GDP. The other 25 variables are just as important. And when they release their report, they're saying, look, some of these things are trending in a recession direction, some aren't. And we're not in a position to declare that we're in or have been in anything. The expectation is third quarter is going to be of maybe one and a half, 1.3% growth. So we will have skipped past those two negative quarters and we can go into why they were negative, blah, blah, blah. But many of the other indicators right now are either neutral or even somewhat positive. I mean, the unemployment rate is still very low. Um, the, one of the ways that we look at unemployment beyond that rate is the quit rate. The quit rate has not been this high in 30 years. And what the quit rate indicates are people that just wake up one morning and say, I hate my job. I hate the people I work with. I hate my boss. I quit. I don't have another job lined up. I don't care. I passed 37 help wanted signs on the way to work today. I can get another job any minute now, and I just quit. When you're heading into a recession, there aren't 35 jobs waiting for you. There's, there's real fear that, oh, my God, I better hang on to my job, even though my boss is a jerk, because we're heading into a recession. So we're just not seeing some of that, that really accumulative negative behavior. On the other hand, we are still seeing enough down signals that it worries us. I mean, we do pay attention to that GDP decline. We are seeing a little bit of decline in capital spending. But just yesterday, I finished a report for uh, a couple of industrial groups that I work for. One is the Chemical Coders Association. The other is the Industrial Heating Equipment Association. They have 12 sectors that they watch, and, and I do a write-up on those. 
of the 12, seven of them were trending positive. Durable goods orders were up. Um, factory orders were up. You had better performance with things like the purchasing managers index. You had pretty really decent numbers in automotive, which is one of the things that's kind of anomalous, but even our own strategic intelligence system has been showing automotive doing this. So for those of you who are only listening and not watching, my right hand is going up and to the right, which indicates a graph that's going up and to the right. And that's good. If it was going down and to the left, that's when you build a yurt in your backyard and hope for the best. Um, so the strategic intelligence system has been showing a bit of a return to normal by early 2023. That's now getting sharper and it's getting more back to at least 2019 levels by second or third quarter of next year. So at least at this point, the data is showing kind of a rugged two or three quarters, um, one of which we're in right now, and some fairly dramatic improvement early to mid next year, which is, you know, it's not great news. We don't want to suffer through three quarters of nonsense, but there's, there's more than a little light at the end of the tunnel. So um, we can go on about other odds and ends. We still have big black swan events to deal with. We're still messing with COVID. We're still dealing with the uh, Russian invasion of, of Ukraine, but at least we dodged the rail strike. Um, that might have thrown things into disarray, but that was kind of funny because I was giving a talk on yesterday morning, and when I went to bed, the rail strike was all over the press. When I woke up, it was over. <laughs> so it's like, Moral of the story is check your cell phone before you speak to anyone. And the good thing is that we didn't have to invoke the Taft-Hartley Act, which is exactly. always a fun exactly. event. Oh, it always is a fun event. And it would have caused Bernie to blow another gasket. Um, right. So, you know, and he, and he doesn't have many gaskets left. Um, so <laughs> we want to preserve those that are there. <laughs> So, Chris, you put out two reports. One's called the flagship report, and one is called ASIS. Let's kind of mm -hmm. walk through the flagship report, which comes out amazing to me, three times a week, every week. It's about eight pages long. You're, somebody's a prolific writer. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's my partner and I. I think it's referred to as verbal diarrhea, um, but, you know, we, we, we do present quite often. Uh, the flagship is a kind of a, a summary of what's happening globally in both economics and to a certain extent, the political implications of economics. We separate it into domestic and global. Uh, so first two pages are little short stories about just events that people should take note of. And because we have a really broad audience, um, manufacturers, transportation, construction, accountants also. I mean, so some of the stories a manufacturer will look at and say, really? I don't care. It's like, yeah, I know, but it's a burning interest to a CPA. Uh, so just pretend you're a CPA for a minute. And then we'll get into a little bit more depth around raw materials, supply chain. Uh, my partner, Keith Prather, who writes it with me, 
is endlessly fascinated by the impact of weather on the economy. So you'll get your hurricane report and, you know, it's so I think he just identifies with meteorologists because we're about as accurate as they are. Um, so that's our our tribute. But that comes out, like I said, three times a week. And the ASIS is more directed straight to manufacturing. We put that out once a month. Uh, we look at the industrial sector as defined by the Federal Reserve. So we look at automotive, we look at aerospace, we look at primary metals, fabricated metals, machinery, electronics, etc. And this one is based on a model that was built for us by a retired lieutenant colonel who was in the artillery in his previous life. And he said, in my previous job, accuracy was really, really important. And he developed a 20, 25 variable system to figure out where those shells were going to go. And he's applied that same technology to our predictability. And we're sitting at about 96% accuracy month to month. So not bad. We think, no, it's, it's spectacular. And it, I just hope to God that nothing ever happens to John, because if I have to figure out those variables, it's going to be flipping a coin going, yeah, it looks good to me. Um, so thank goodness for old artillery officers. Well, Steve Bernanke, you can always get him as a replacement. He's the right. CNN meteorologist. And, you know, he's the guy who waves his arms and points. Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, see, I, I miss the old weatherman that just had like a grease pencil and just drew on the, you know, little smiley suns. and. Isn't rain. that Donald Trump? Oh, I'm sorry. I don't talk <laughs> politics. Okay, yeah, exactly. so, so being that uh, you've now told us everything that you do in vast detail, why don't you tell our audience how and where they can find you and uh, get oh, some there, there, support? There's an idea. There's an idea. Well, I guess if you're wandering through Kansas City, find me, but it might be easier uh, just to send me an email. So the email address is chris.keel, so it's C-H-R-I-S dot K-U-E-H-L, good German name that you can either pronounce or spell, depending on what you've encountered, at armadaci.com. So that's A-R-M-A-D-A-C-I.com. And that always prompts me to tell my only Armada joke, which is why does the Spanish Navy have glass bottom boats so they can see the old Spanish Navy? <laughs> Chris, what now in the flagship reports, there's always a column on what's coming up. So what's right. coming up in reports that are about to come out that people like to look at and go, ooh, there's something we should pay attention to. Yeah, yeah, there's there's always quite a bit of stuff that happens at the quarter. Um, so as we are going into the next quarter, you'll see a lot of revisions of GDP numbers. Probably the big things that people watch uh, from one month to the next is obviously employment to see if that's beginning to, to change. Because right now the Fed feels like it has the freedom to raise interest rates as long as the unemployment rate stays low. If people want to know when the rate raising stops, it's going to be when the unemployment rate begins to rise because the Fed will then say, okay, that's enough. We have a dual mandate. We're supposed to be controlling inflation and growing the economy. 
So if the unemployment rate goes up, we have to stop raising rates. So that that's one we're going to be looking at closely. Probably the biggest thing coming up is going to be retail numbers. Um, this is the point in the year where retail comes to dominate. It is certainly the driver for fourth quarter numbers. And there'll be three kind of critical points that people will be watching between now and the end of the year. The first of them is Halloween. Halloween is now the second largest holiday spending period in the U.S. calendar. This will be the sixth year in a row that adult costumes have outsold children's. So it is, it is now an adult holiday. It is now a decorating holiday. Then you go into Black Vember. Um, it used to be Black Friday. Now it's Black Vember. The entire month is full of sales and discounts, and it's dominated by women because they know that Christmas is going to be on the 25th. The American male does not know that. The American male is convinced that Christmas will be in March this year, and they have plenty of time, and they have bought nothing. So two days before Christmas, men start to shop. And the Retail Federation has discovered that of the men that shop the last two days before Christmas, 50% of what they buy is bought at a convenience store. So if you have been the proud recipient of a six-pack and a package of Slim Jims, you now know why. Um, so, But this ends up saving Christmas because the women that get the worthless gifts that we purchase take it back to the store not in a very good mood and routinely spend two to three times more than we spent on the original gift men saving christmas so we'll be watching that closely so how does i'm sorry do you know lewis black you and he should do a skit together <laughs> Well, you know, I, 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 yeah, I could be his, his, there's warm up acts. I could be the cool down act. It's like, man, anybody after this guy is going to be a relief. So they'll just <laughs> suffer through me and wait for him. So, so Chris, a couple of, <clears throat> a couple of months ago, we were looking at transportation containers right. coming in from China. <laughs> are, are they here? Am I going to get my Christmas stuff in February? Much of that kind of logistical long jam was solved on our side. So most of what's happening on the ports now, they're at pretty close to capacity, but they're keeping up, or at least they were until the, the threat of the freight rail strike. Because what happened then is that in anticipation of that, you saw certain kinds of freight being stalled. Um, the freight haulers would not carry hazardous material because they were afraid that if the strike happened, all of a sudden they'd be responsible for storing that stuff and they didn't want to do it. You had a lot of concern at the ports as to whether or not there would be a sympathy strike uh, on the part of the dock workers. And there'd been no formal declaration, but that usually happens. And so we saw a little bit of a slowdown in anticipation of the rail strike now that there's not going to be one there's there's an opening up again the congestion is on the china side you still have a lot of lockdowns in the major chinese ports and so they're not moving freight out the way they were so a lot of the congestion issues that we were dealing with in the summer have have eased a bit kind of depending i mean on the retail side more obviously than elsewhere retail does most of their peak shipping maybe a month or so ago getting ready for the holiday season 
now it's it's kind of back to more traditional uh, shipping. The supply chain still a mess. Um, a lot of stuff is still locked up in China, but companies have shifted and have started putting more emphasis in other countries, other Asian countries, some in Africa even. Um, and then we've had a trillion dollars worth of reshoring already this year uh, in the U.S., probably another trillion by the end of the year. And that's changing the dynamics as well. You're seeing a lot more supply coming from within the U.S., but that won't radically change the the transportation situation until probably next year because it takes a little while just to get your ducks in a row when you've moved your operations. Uh, I'd like to just bring up a point uh, regarding uh, the reshoring and China and uh, so on. Yeah, China is having some major issues now. Lockdowns, shutdowns, uh, uh, they're, they're, run, they're running out of uh, oil. The demand for oil is uh, the greatest it's been in three decades, and they don't have a lot of it at this point. Uh, so the point is that uh, we instituted tariffs against the American people right. buying from China. Right. The U.S. manufacturer and the reshoring of manufacturing to the United States has increased domestic, U.S. domestic pricing because they can. So, right. so on top of the tariffs that we're paying at the tune of 15 to 25 percent, the, the fact that the uh, U.S. manufacturers are taking advantage and raising prices, the fact that the steel companies now are opening new steel mills because they've got the ball in their court. Right. This all adds to our inflation is mm -hmm. issue and mainstream media, not us. We'll yeah. give you the facts. It's not helping us. No. And that's something that people sort of understood, but I'm being generous. Much of what we did with inflation for the last 20, 30 years is we exported it. So if you were a company that was facing higher operations costs, higher labor costs, whatever, well, your simple solution was to move it overseas. And so your workforce would say, I want to raise. Well, they don't want one in Guangzhou, see ya. And, and off you went. Over time, those prices rose in those markets. I mean, it's still much cheaper than here. But take, for example, China. 10, 15 years ago, a skilled manufacturing worker in China would be making maybe $5,000 a year. So what a bargain. Let's do it there rather than here. It's still much cheaper than the U.S., but now it's $35,000 a year. So that same worker has had a $30,000 a year raise. It's still cheaper than here, but not as cheap. And then you start putting in the transportation costs and companies say, you know, I don't want to handle the hassle of dealing with overseas. I'm going to bring it home. But when you bring it home, you're paying U.S. wages, you're paying U.S. regulatory costs, you're paying U.S. production costs, you're paying U.S. transportation costs. They're all more expensive. Inflation goes up. You add in the tariffs, as you point out, and, and tariff is simply a tax. And since you can't tax a foreign country directly, all you can do is tax the people who are buying from that foreign country. Tariffs basically increase the burden on the consumer in the U.S., either directly or indirectly. 
so you've got all of this this building in kind of good news, bad news. The good news is we're bringing jobs back to the U.S. We're bringing production back to the U.S. The bad news, we're also bringing inflation back to the U.S. Down the road, China has other issues to contend with. Um, there's a leadership struggle going on in China right now. It's kind of not appearing in the in the U.S. media, but I think I've talked about this before. I don't read a lot of the U.S. media because it's too superficial and too biased and all that stuff. My two favorite sources are Deutsche Welle, which is the German version of the BBC, and it is so typically German. This happens. If it is good or bad, it's for you to decide. It just happened. These are the facts. You know, it's it's German. You know, I mean, it's just like we don't even tell jokes here. Um, so. And then the other favorite one is Azahi Shimbun, which is the Japanese major newspaper, and it covers Asia so much better than we do. And and it's watching all the discussion going on in China. They have their big 20th party Congress meeting in October, and the prediction is there may be some fairly radical policy changes after that meeting. Um, there's a lot of pressure on Xi to back off of all these lockdowns and that may come to a head at this meeting. There's a rival to his power, Li Keqiang. Li is currently the premier. He thought he was going to be the head of China at one point and he's getting his ducks in a row saying, Xi, you are destroying our economy. Back off. So we'll see. Um, Things get, get very interesting. The Japanese are watching this like a hawk. I mean, it's like it, they watch Chinese politics like we watch football. You know, it's like, which always amazes me. The average person can describe in detail what their left tackle did on a particular play, but they have no clue how the economy works. <laughs> so. But by the way, I agree with you with uh, Deutsche uh, newspaper and the BBC. They're my favorite. They are. They are. They're just and the bonus. If you read the Japanese papers, you can follow interesting new sports like sumo, you know, so <laughs> you know, particularly for people who are constantly worrying about their diet. It's like, oh, man. I'm not going to work. I'm just going to be a sumo wrestler and I can eat whatever I want. <laughs> or my 600 yeah. pound life becomes a different TV show. Yeah. All of a sudden it becomes, you know, I'm only 600 pounds. I've got to get up to 800 if I want to be competitive. You know, so. You ever watch Chinese television? They're, play, they're playing the Japanese wars daily. Oh, I know. I know. It, it's just it's just a crack up. Yeah. Reading, reading Asian, it all of a sudden you get a, an insight into countries that have been important to us for decades. But we, you know, the average even American businessman wouldn't be able to find Malaysia if they had to. Um, so, <laughs> well, it's interesting you mentioned those alternate media sources. I read Al Jazeera. Yeah. on a fairly regular basis. Uh, they do a much better job of reporting facts and actually do journalism, something that has left the mainstream media of America about two decades ago with Ruin Arledge. Oh, absolutely, because I get interviewed by Al Jazeera people probably weekly, and, and, it's, and it's the kind of 
in-depth thing. I mean, I had one probably a month ago where they literally gave me 40 minutes to discuss how the Fed decides what's to do with interest rates. And, you know, and it's very, very complicated and it's involving 12 regional Fed presidents and blah, 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 blah. The American media gives me 30 seconds to explain, uh, the rates are going up. Okay, bye. Um, and Al, Al Jazeera was like, yeah, but, you know, who's Loretta Mester and what does it mean that Esther George is retiring and, you know, and, and who does, it's like, yeah, that matters. Um, but mostly we don't get a chance to talk about it. So. Tim, I think that we have to increase the length of our show for uh, Chris to 40 minutes. We're not going to be outdone. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's right. Well, and if you do that, maybe, you know, maybe you can get, I think it's Dubai underwrites Al Jazeera. So um, because in the in the category of adjustments to things, you know, we know that we're in the energy crisis and and russia is responsible but long term even medium term russia has destroyed itself because europe is not sitting around hoping that they get energy from russia someday they're replacing it now and one of the more interesting developments is gutter and gutter has been trying for years to get funding for this big gas field that they have but nobody took them up on it because they could get cheap gas from russia now, all of a sudden, they know they don't want it to depend on Russia, and the gutter just got that funding where ExxonMobil, ConocoPhillips, Total, ENI, and Shell all went together to develop this field, which will make gutter the second largest gas producer on the planet behind only the U.S., and 100% in places Russia. And And all of a sudden, it's like, you know, Russia may use leverage gutters like, hi, we're this little tiny Middle Eastern country. We are going to be existing exclusively to provide gas to Europe. What do you want? How do you want it? Um, so it's it's been interesting. And even just watching the ferment in the Middle East, um, I keep pointing out to people that if you want to know the difference between some of these countries, tune in to the Housewives of Dubai, <laughs> which is on TV now. And I saw a clip at one point where this fetching young thing in her bikini was complaining that her neighbor had five Ferraris and she only had four. So I was I was sure that when you said that Dubai was underwriting Al Jazeera that their print edition must be using gold ink. <laughs> but it's, it's actually hard to read. It's actually printed on gold bars. Um, you, you, <laughs> you get the bars delivered to you, and, and it's just embossed on the bars, yeah. <laughs> Very nice. Uh, with regard to energy and so on, um, Europe is, uh, I guess, now becoming the leader in Northern Europe for wave technology, mm -hmm. where they have these 300-foot-long tubes it looks like a railroad train goes right. under the water. They are, they have turbines in them, and the waves make the turbines move. And right now, in Sweden and or Norway or both, ten percent of their energy is coming from waves. Right. And you don't have to wait for the sun to come out. You don't have to wait for the rain to stop. You don't have to wait for anything. It just keeps moving. 
You just need friendly people doing this. Yeah, and they go, ha, 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 ha. <laughs> we need Pichu. you. We are making energy. You know, so, yeah, um, yeah. So, yeah, as a matter of fact, there is one wave technology turbine in the East River of New York. Very good. And about every six months, they have to pull it up and fix it because all the uh, pallets and telephone poles and bodies that go through the turbine, they have to fix the blades on the turbines. But yeah, I, it does I, work. If only they could reach an agreement with the local mafia to put the bodies in some other body of water. You know, it's like, you know, give us give us a break here. Yeah, I mean, and Europe is is moving very, very quickly to reverse its energy dependence on, on Russia. They actually have now more gas in storage than they have ever had. They're just not sure if it's going to be enough to get them all the way through the winter. And so it's kind of hanging on weather broadcasts. But they're you know expanding the pipeline that goes through spain and portugal they're kind of getting over their queasiness about dealing with certain countries i mean it's libya is a major producer or could be except that there's nobody in control in libya it's 27 warlords fighting each other and the europeans are now coming down saying yeah i don't really care do you have gas you have oil. Um, I will buy it. If you want to use it to kill the guy next door, could you please wait until I buy his gas and oil, and then you can go ahead and kill him. Um, but first, I need to buy his output. Or wait until the spring. Yeah, wait, exactly. And so there's there's a lot of, and, and speaking of whether or not Russia can keep this up, the most interesting thing through the week was the meeting between Putin and Xi, where China basically said, knock it off. We're tired of this. This is causing our economy grief. And when Putin goes on a press conference and says publicly, we are reacting to Chinese concerns, this meant that Xi put his finger in Putin's face and said, stop, or I'm not going to back you one iota. You're making my economy suffer, you little pipsqueak, back off. Um, so, you know, when you lose your biggest ally, yeah, it's time to find that retirement dacha someplace up in the north and hope that nobody can find you and you change your name to Fred Putin. Um, so. <laughs> yeah, well, I was going to ask you how the war in Ukraine is going, but I think you just gave us the synopsis. Oh, it's, it's, it is amazing. There was a report that came out, didn't get a lot of press in the U.S., but it certainly did in Europe. Three of the most modern Russian tanks were taken out in a drone strike. And everyone was like, well, OK, that you know makes sense. The drones are pretty sophisticated. Someone says, no, 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 you don't understand. This was a $50 drone from Radio Shack that was being flown by a 13-year-old girl that had gotten a hold of dynamite sticks duct taped them to the bottom of the drone, lit the fuse, and flew it into the tanks and took them out. And it's like, okay, Russia, you are now up against inventive, risky-taking 13-year-old Ukrainian girls who just blew up your tanks. Russia entered that war with 200,000 soldiers. They have lost 95,000 of them. Wow. Wow. There's, and it's another, like... there's another story that hit the news uh, this week about the 
uh, high-tech fighter plane, the Russian fighter mm -hmm. plane, that has some kind of a new technology that goes on the tips of the wings uh, that does something that's been top secret. The U.S. knew about it, uh, didn't understand anything about it other than knowing about it, and now they have the plane. Mm -hmm. So... Yeah, I mean, the, the technology is is there. The challenge the Russians have always had with technology is that they develop it. They don't quite know how to use it at times. They don't have enough pilots to fly it. One of the back when the Soviet Union was disappearing and Russia was coming into being, one of the funny stories was that there was a state-of-the-art MiG that was on display at an air show right as the government was falling. And the pilot walked across the tarmac to the French and said, you want the plane? And they're like, what? You want the plane? I am pilot. I flew it here. You want the keys? There's no government to go back to. It's yours. How much? Uh, five mil. So they gave this guy five million bucks to basically take a $45 million aircraft and he walked across the paramac and says, I live in Bermuda now. Great life. <laughs> <laughs> Americans have the right idea. Exactly. It's like, you know, it's like nobody owns anything. We we actually had a term for it back then. They called it spontaneous privatization. It's like, who owns this? I do. <laughs> and it's like, how come? Because I have in my hand. Um, they're therefore mine. Incredible. What has happened with the Russian Air Force, Chris? I mean, everybody's wondering, where was it in the Ukrainian war? Like, it wasn't present. There's an awful lot of, of conversation, and one doesn't know quite how to make of this, but the Russian military has always kind of been split. Um, the infantry and I mean, all militaries are the Air Force doesn't trust the Navy and the Navy doesn't trust the Army and nobody understands the Marines. Um, so it's it's kind of chronic. But the Air Force has always been kind of a more professional branch of of the Russian military. And they've always seen their job as protecting and against the bigger forces, the Americans, the Europeans and the like, they did not really want to get involved in this war because they said, look, this is going to compromise our ability to really deal with the challenges. You know, what if the United States or Europe decides to to get aggressive? You know, we're the only group that can defend you. But if you squander us trying to deal with Ukraine, um, well, that's not a good thing because the Air Force is very, very powerful when it's in the air, but when it's on the ground and your opponents have missiles, ooh, that's a problem. Um, and the air bases would be close enough for the Ukrainians to hit. And so it's one of those things like, can we defend our own Air Force? Probably not. And that becomes an issue as well. So, I mean, it's highly convoluted i'm the red team economist for the u.s military and that affords me an opportunity to sit in and listen to, to i'm supposed to be teaching them about economics but i just shut up and let them tell me stuff um so it's it's been interesting because the u.s military has been baffled at how bad the russian military has been um we're sharing intelligence with ukraine 
and we discovered that the Russian intelligence was so bad that they were listening in to the Ukrainian intelligence to figure out where their own men were. So it's like, look, they're they're shooting at Sergei. That must be where Sergei is. Chris, <laughs> 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 how much is a Russian tank, an advanced Russian tank that just got taken out with sixty bucks? Oh, th these are you know these are like quarter of a million dollar vehicles, you know, plus the crew. I mean, I mean, it's like, it's it's, but even that, I mean, the U.S the the whole notion of fighting in the era that we're in with tanks it's kind of like this is not world war ii this is not the battle on the kursk plane you know we learned how useful tanks were in afghanistan you know they make a great shade producer you know but i mean how do you fight a guerrilla war with a tank you don't and you know you can blow the bejesus out of every building but as the russians have learned and you'd think they would have learned from afghanistan the people that are still there just hide in the rubble better than they were hiding in the building and they still kill you when you come over the side <laughs> it's kind of like well congratulations you just created a lot more cover for me um in the process of blowing that building up well, the $700 million of armaments that the Russians have uh, ditched in mm -hmm. Ukraine uh, certainly doesn't help them. Uh, no. And, and, it's, and it's, it's the corruption that's always been a problem. It was one of the parts where people were confused was how come the Russians didn't have fuel for their tanks? And the issue was not that they didn't have fuel. It's just that the guys that were hauling the fuel were selling it to the Ukrainians. <laughs> and they said, why are you selling your fuel to the Ukrainians? This is because they pay in dollars and euros, not stinking rubles. Yeah, but they're going to use it to kill your people. Those are not my people. Those are tank people. They're so important in their tanks. We're truck people. All they want to do is buy our stuff. They don't shoot at us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do want to point out that we have now approached and surpassed the 40-minute mark. So <laughs> mainstream U.S. media. <laughs> exactly. Tune in next week for Al Tim, Al Lou, and Al Chris, um, <laughs> the Jazeera <laughs> triplets. Um, so. <laughs> Maybe we could get their backing. Blue, exactly. write a letter to Dubai. Hey, you know, I mean, you had all those towns that changed their name to Google, you know, just to get the money. So it's just like from here on out, it's, you know, I'll Chris, I'll Tim, and I'll Lou. Um, we'll do it. <laughs> Is yellow part of their color? I think it may be. <laughs> I'm going to send my Crayola style letter to Zero. Excellent. Yes, we'll take backing from Al Jazeera. And while you're surfing the web and checking out armadaci.com, come over to jacketmediaco.com for all of our entertaining shows, especially those with Chris <laughs> Keel, whom we love to have on the show. Chris, thanks for joining us. You're so welcome. Have a good afternoon, evening, wherever you are, and we'll talk to you in a month. Thank you much for joining us. And thanks, everyone, for being with us on this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.